Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wars that shaped the world uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. Chaos is a word that appears in many recollections of 6th of June 1944. From the confusion of the British and American paratroopers scattered across Norman countryside, to the surprise of the shell-shocked German defenders. From the bloodied sands of Omaha Beach to whole units landing in the wrong place on neighboring Utah. And it was the chaos of battle that saw Major Stanley Christofferson of the Sherwood Foresters swap his tank for a horse. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever anticipate that D-Day would find me dashing along the lanes of Normandy, endeavouring, not very successfully, to control a frightened horse with one hand, gripping a map case in the other, and wearing a tin hat and black overalls. Christofferson was attempting to locate the infantry unit lost in Norman lanes that was supposed to be supporting his tanks during a key moment of D-Day. It is a snapshot of a day. A day when the British army returned to France four years after being ignominiously bundled out, wading into the English Channel to be rescued by the flotilla of small boats at Dunkirk. An army humbled. Now, they were back. A four-year wait, and all for a return that for some lasted a matter of, if not seconds, and certainly no more than minutes. The Hampshire Regiment were first ashore, charging onto Gold Beach, and within moments, they saw their commanding officer gunned down. But, like Christofferson and his tanks, the Hampshires found a way through. The British Army was not going to be pushed back into the channel again. This is Wars That Shaped the World.
Eine endlose Front von Schiffen, die sich von den Klippen von Aromanches... An endless front of ships, extending from the cliffs of Aromanches to the horizon east of the Orne Anchory, all coming towards us. I wish I could call all the generals up to Adolf Hitler and say, get here quickly before it's too late. Anything that can still fight, get it here. The Air Force, where are they? The Navy, where are they? Get here now. Come see it's here, schnell, schnell. Except Hitler was asleep. And his generals too scared to wake him. Rommel, in charge of the Nazi defense of Normandy, was awake, but hundreds of miles away at home in Herlingen, near Ulm where he'd returned for his wife's 50th birthday. It fell on the 6th of June. Rommel was up early, preparing for his wife's big day. He'd bought her a pair of shoes, specially made in Paris, and was arranging birthday flowers when the family maid called out. He was wanted on the telephone. It was 6.30 a.m. Hallo? Ah, Speidel. Ja? Ja, was ist das? It was Hans Spiedel, his chief of staff, calling from his headquarters in a magnificent chateau on the Ile de France, passing on news of this endless front of ships seen off the coast. The invasion was coming. Rommel had been due to meet with Hitler after marking his wife's birthday. Instead, he called for his staff car. Tempo, 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 he said to his driver, urging him on through the long journey back to the Chateau La Roche-Guillon. Hundreds of years before, a previous owner of the chateau had been killed at Agincourt. Now, the English were invading again. Back home, Lucy opened her birthday present and tried on the shoes. They didn't fit. Rommel was not to reach La Roche-Guillon until nightfall. At another chateau, this one outside Paris, General Gunther Blumentritt stared at his telephone, 
Field Marshal von Rundstedt's Chief of Staff had rung German High Command to request urgent release of the Panzer divisions in France. Only Hitler could authorize that. At 7 a.m., the telephone finally rang. Stop them moving at once, Blumentritt was ordered. They must stay where they are. In Normandy, the Panzer troops sat by their vehicles and waited. In Berchtesgaden, Hitler slept on. There came no from the No orders came through from the army command center or from the commander of Panzergruppe. No alert. Nothing. Nichts. Gold Beach was the most westerly of the three earmarked for British and Canadian forces. Sprawled between the pretty seaside town of Aramanche and the resort of La Riviere, the entire beach was close to nine miles long, but only part was suitable for landing due to offshore reefs. The first of the invasion force to set foot on it were a small group of commando frogmen, sent in at 4 a.m. to prepare mined obstacles for destruction. They were to set them off during the naval barrage to cover the explosions. It was cold, hard work in the chill and choppy waters, and highly dangerous. If a charge detonated before the frogman was far enough away, it would be fatal. They worked hard, fingers numb, but it was an impossible job to clear them all before the landing craft appeared. The frogmen watched in horror as one plowed into a mine. The men went up as though standing to attention, as though they were going up inside a fountain, and at the top of the fountain, the bodies and parts of bodies spread out like drops of water. With each hour set for 7.30 a.m., it gave extra time for the bombers and warships to wreak destruction on the German defenses, and both were more effective than on neighboring Omaha. The sea conditions were similar to Omaha, and the men were wet, miserable, and seasick by the time they reached the beach. The reason we stormed Normandy like we did was because the soldiers would rather have fought the whole German army than go back on the ships and be as seasick as they were going over. My God, those soldiers couldn't wait to get on dry land. Nothing would have got in their way. They would have torn tanks to pieces with their bare hands. Crucially, the landing craft and tank commanders didn't make the same mistake as those at Omaha and released their amphibious tanks at the agreed range of 5,000 yards they would have been swamped. Instead, the Sherwood Rangers were released at 1,000 yards. They still lost eight tanks. The 4th, 7th Dragoon Guards argued with their landing craft commanders, demanding to be taken even closer, and so reached the beach with fewer losses than the Sherwoods. Once ashore, the tanks were immediately in action. Their arrival straight out of the sea shocked the German defenders. They could scarcely believe their eyes. But they soon gathered themselves and opened fire. One tank commander poked his head out the turret to get his bearings. It was a fatal error. His right elbow hit me on the neck. His left elbow hit the gun. He sagged and his knees hit me in the kidneys. And when I turned, I could just see blood running. It wasn't splashing, just a gentle run. And there it was on the bottom of the tank just coagulating in a small pool and getting thicker and thicker. On the right flank of Gold Beach, the 1st Battalion Hampshires and the 1st Dorsets 
landed to the east of Le Hamel and Aramont. With their supporting amphibious tanks delayed because of sea conditions, the Hampshires suffered the toughest of starts. Their CO and several senior officers were hit almost at once as they were pinned down by heavy machine gun fire. There was a young officer, he was second lieutenant, and he led his platoon in, and a piece of shrapnel took the whole of his lower jaw away, blew it off completely. That man carried on with his platoon as long as he could. Eventually, through loss of blood, they had to take him back. He never moaned or nothing. The medical officer did what he could for him. He died just afterwards. If ever a man deserved a medal, it was him. Terrible death. Terrible death. It took the Hampshires, with support of the second Devons, much of the day to quell German resistance in their sector. At the other end of Gold Beach, the Green Howards were swiftly ashore and swiftly off the beach, advancing towards Mount Fleury. On the extreme left, the East Yorks found the going tough as they sought to clear the resort of La Riviere. Bunkers, many hidden beneath houses, escaped largely unscathed from the bombardment, and their defenders resisted stubbornly. The East Yorks were helped by special tanks, Hobart's Funnies, named after their inventor, Percy Hobart. These were tanks adapted for specific purposes. Got a minefield, 200 yards. They'd been scoffed at ahead of the invasion, but flail tanks designed to clear minefields, bunker busters, and flamethrowing crocodile tanks proved key in assisting the East Yorks in ending German resistance. And they were to prove themselves again and again through the campaign in Western Europe over the coming year. As soon as they trundled out of the waves, the tanks and their crews became the focus for the desperate defenders. Suddenly there was a flash, and 60 tons of metal just disappeared in front of our eyes. And then down came a sprocket, a piece of track, flames licking the sand. The tank had literally disappeared in front of our eyes. While the fighting continued at either flank, most of the beach was now secure and the landing of tanks, men and equipment in full swing. The British targets for the day were ambitious. There was no time to waste. One wasn't conscious of being in the middle of a hurly-burly. Everything was very well ordered. Things were arriving, being unloaded. All those nice little French villas just inland had been set on fire and almost all were destroyed. I was more frightened of making a cock-up of my job and letting the side down than anything else. It was absolutely like clockwork. The Hampshires secured Aramanche, where one of the Mulberry artificial harbours was to be established. 47 commando of the Royal Marines pushed west, tasked with taking port on Bessin and linking up with the left flank of the US forces coming from Omaha. Halfway through the graveyard, a shot whistled by me. I dropped to the ground amid a mass of poppies and moved slowly towards a stone tombstone for safer shelter. Another shot rang out. I hid behind the tombstone, peered round it, and spotted a German helmet. I fired back, and for the next few minutes it was real cowboys and Indian stuff. With the last of my ammunition, I got a lucky ricochet on my enemy, who slumped from his hiding place into my full view. I went over and found I was gazing at a young boy, probably one of the Hitler Jugend. I felt sick. Sicker even than I had done on the landing craft an hour or so previously.
Green Howards fought inland. It was here the only Victoria Cross of D-Day was won. Company Sergeant Major Stanley Hollis charged a pillbox, firing his Sten gun, leapt on top of it and dropped grenades into the firing slits. Later that day, Stan Hollis displayed further outstanding courage in the Green Howard's attack on the village of Crepon, including leading a diversionary attack so a group of his men, pinned down by an MG42, could escape. Wherever the fighting was heaviest, he appeared, displaying the utmost gallantry. It was largely through his heroism and resource that the company's objectives were gained and casualties were not heavier. He saved the lives of many of his men. In the center, a German battle group led by Oberstleutnant Meyer held fast for a time, but was eventually wiped out. Meyer himself among the casualties. Only 90 of his 3,000 men escaped to fight again and a squadron of tanks from the Sherwood Rangers had orders to take Bayeux by the end of D-Day. The units had problems coordinating their advance, so Major Stanley Christofferson, leading the tank squadron, took matters into his own hands. Christofferson spotted a horse in a field, leapt on it, and galloped off to find the Essex's commanding officer. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever anticipate that D-Day would find me dashing along the lanes of Normandy, endeavoring, not very successfully, to control a frightened horse with one hand, gripping a map case in the other, and wearing a tin hat and black overalls. The Essex colonel was somewhat startled when I eventually found him and reported that my squadron was ready to support his battalion in the next phase of the attack. By evening, they'd reached the outskirts of Bayeux. Christofferson believed it was there for the taking. The town was reported to be barely defended. But the Essex colonel preferred to dig in where they were, short of their objective for D-Day. Across Gold Sector, the British fell short of their objective of reaching the N13 highway. But nevertheless, it had been a satisfactory beginning. 25,000 men ashore, 400 of whom were dead or wounded. And crucially, on their left flank, they linked up with the Canadians. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Led by Rod Keller, 
a large man with a classic military moustache and a taste for whiskey, the Canadians landed on Juneau, stretching from La Riviere to Saint-Aubin-sur-Mer. Spearheaded by Keller's 3rd Division, the Canadians were after revenge for Dieppe, where they'd lost more than half their attacking force during a disastrous large-scale raid in 1942. It was an horrific setback that had informed much of the Allied planning for D-Day. The naval bombardment began at 5.27 a.m. HMS Belfast played a part in the bombardment of both Gold and Juneau. During her stay off the Norman coast, the light cruiser fired some 5,000 shells. It was the last time she was to fire her guns in anger in the war. Alongside her, vessels from Norway, France and a couple of Canadian destroyers, two of the 107 Canadian ships involved in D-Day, joined in. As at Omaha, it was not as effective as the planners hoped. Also in common with Omaha, the bombers, British this time, missed their targets. One German dispatch confessed to not being sure exactly what the Allied bombardment had been aimed at. All the softening up did was alert the enemy of the landing and give them the chance to prepare for our guys coming in. The Canadians were tough soldiers, all volunteers. There was conscription in Canada, but only those who volunteered were sent into action. Yet, like the British, French and American troops, by the time the landing craft reached dry land, they were ferrying a cargo of seasick, cold and wet men. Rocket ships launched the final broadside, and then silence fell, apart from the grind of the landing craft engines and the swish of the waves. The Germans held their fire until the ramps fell. The first splashed down into the shallows at 0749, and that was the signal for sound and fury. Germans opened up with everything they had left. The Canadian infantry had been ordered to leave any wounded where they fell, but many ignored that and dragged their injured comrades onto the beach. It was unreal, eh? Machine gun fire, mostly wild, and lots of the infantry were still in the water and they couldn't get any. They took cover behind the tanks. We were in water up to our waist and sometimes our chests. We waded ashore and it was pretty slow work. We hit the beach and machine guns were making us play hopscotch as we crossed it. Amphibious tanks of the 1st Hussars and the Fort Garry Horse reached the beach at the same time. I was the first tank coming ashore and the Germans started opening up with machine guns. But when we came to a halt on the beach, it was only then they realized we were a tank when we pulled down our canvas skirt, the flotation gear. Then they saw that we were Shermans. It was quite amazing. I still remember vividly some of the machine gunners standing up in their posts, looking at us with mouths wide open. To see tanks coming out of the water shook them rigid. We mowed them down like they were corn on the cobs. It proved a tough day for the Canadians. Initially, there were fears it was turning into their own Omaha. Casualties on D-Day for the Canadians were 1,200, most coming in the first couple of waves. But there were two key differences. 
More tanks got ashore, among them Hobart's funnies, which made a significant difference as they busted bunkers, cleared minefields, and laid track over ditches and the sea wall. And the terrain to get off the beach was less challenging than Omaha. The Germans had fortified Courcelles-sur-Mer, Vox, and Grey-sur-Mer, and even with tank support, it took until the afternoon to clear them. Houses had become strongholds linked by tunnels. When cleared out of one, the Germans would scamper through the tunnels and re-emerge behind the Canadians. It was grim, bloody fighting. Tanks blasting houses and bunkers at close range, and the infantry going in to clear them one at a time. Those fighting was harder than anticipated. They hung in there and they were difficult to get out of the houses. At Bernier-sur-Mer, a squadron of Fort Garry horse tanks lined up on the beach and poured round after round into the defended houses. They blasted a gap in the sea wall and the tanks poured through. By 0900, one seafront cafe had bravely opened its patron handing out drinks to celebrate liberation. The Canadians pushed inland. Behind them on Juneau, the landing of further tanks, artillery and men became increasingly disorganized. General Keller was livid as he landed with an entourage of newspaper men and photographers and found himself in a traffic jam. The Regiment de la Chaudière, a French-speaking unit to the delight of locals emerging from their cellars, took the lead. They met strong resistance as the coast gave way to wheat fields on the approaches to Beni Sumer. We came under a crossfire of machine guns. By this time, I'm pretty cocky. Have all the confidence in the world. I was ahead of my section, which was in the lead on the right flank. We were in grass, which gave us cover from the machine gun fire. I crawled up to a barbed wire fence, which was about 100 yards from the enemy's slick trench. I saw a Bosch well exposed and, like a sucker, raised myself to take aim. I was just squeezing the trigger when a machine gun bullet smacked me down. It hit me in the right leg and went through the thigh from left to right. Two inches higher and I would have stopped being a man. One, two, three, four. Don't you want to come around, come around and tell me, don't you want to come around here? You won't find nothing unless you bring something, you won't find nothing around here. German machine guns pinned down the Canadians, forcing them to crawl through the wheat to attempt to outflank them. Naval gunfire helped clear the way, but it remained slow going. The Canadian's target of Carpequet Airfield, near the Khan Bayer Highway, was visible through binoculars. But the day was running out, as was ammunition for the crucial tank support. Three tanks did reach the highway. Their commander thought the airfield there for the taking but his radio signal for support went unanswered. He'd no choice but to withdraw. General Keller feared a counterattack from the lurking 21st Panzer Division and preferred to have his men dig in rather than press on towards the airfield. Unknown to Keller and his Canadians, there was panic and confusion on the airfield as the Luftwaffe sought to evacuate. In Karpiket, on 16 at Karpiket at 19.20 hours on 6 June, everybody lost their heads badly. The station commander gave orders for evacuation. 
The Canadians had advanced as quickly as they could, but rather like the British before Bayeux, their hesitation was to cost them dear. Carpequet airfield remained in German hands for another month. Eight kilometers to the east of Juneau lay the last of the five invasion beaches, Sword, running between Saint-Aubain-sur-Mer and the mouth of the River Orne. The landings were supported by the largest naval fleet, including 13 destroyers, two battleships, and four cruisers, because of the number of German heavy batteries in the area. The Merville battery was destroyed by the 6th Airborne overnight, while the other main one at Le Havre became engaged in trading fruitless fire with the warships, rather than focusing on what was happening on the beach. At 05.30, the landing craft were lowered into a heavy sea. Yet again, the poor bloody infantry struggled with sickness. Some were scared shitless, others fiercely proud just to be part of it. Anticipation with nervous excitement showed everywhere. And once again, there were problems with the amphibious tanks, this time belonging to the Hussars and Staffordshire Yeomanry. Waves were up to five feet, six out of 40 sunk, two after being struck by landing craft. It was an alarming experience guiding an amphibious tank through heavy seas. There's spray in your face. You're watching everything that's happening. You're seeing explosions. As the swell comes, you turn into it and ride it. As the trough appeared in the waves, so the tank slid into the trough. And with the engines racing, it managed to climb up to the crest of the next wave. Yet by the time the first waves of infantry landed, some tanks were already ashore and firing on the German defences. For once, just as the planners envisaged. The South Lanks launched an immediate attack on their first objective, a strong point codenamed COD. Within minutes, their commanding officer was killed and medical officer wounded. Minutes after that, a Bren gun platoon in carriers advanced briskly up the beach to COD and its defenders surrendered. The other battalion in the first wave, the East Yorks, were hit badly. Those that survived found cover at the top of the beach and looked back at what they'd escaped. A scene of utter destruction. Wrecked boats lay broadside on. Dead comrades floated face down in the tide. Others lay in grotesque positions on the beach. But they pushed on. And by the time the Middlesex Regiment was landing, the mayor of Colville, wearing a brass fireman's helmet, was on the beach welcoming the liberators. A young French woman came down and began to treat the wounded. Another who joined her was to meet her future British husband as she went about bandaging the injured. The flail tanks of the Westminster Dragoons set to work, clearing paths through the minefields and the exits from the beach were available quicker than anywhere else on D-Day. By 8 a.m., the fighting on Sword Beach was all but done. We got off the beach bloody quickly. They drove off the beach flailing. They flailed straight up the dunes, then turned right flailing, and then flailed back to below high water mark. We were saved by our flail tanks, no question about it. Further along the beach came the sound of bagpipes. Highland Laddie the tune as Lord Lovett and his commandos landed. There was all this activity, bugles sounding, bagpipes playing, men dashing around, the commandos coming in off a landing craft and just moving off the beaches as if it was a Sunday afternoon. 
chatting and mumbling away at whatever they were going to do. But it was far from a Sunday afternoon stroll. The commandos had to pick their way through the dead of the first wave. Bodies lay sprawled over the beach. Some with legs, arms and heads missing. Blood clotting in the sand. The moans and screams of those in agony blended to the shriek of bullets and whining of shells. The commandos had discarded helmets and wore instead their green berets. Bill Millen, the piper, followed Lovett off the landing craft. The man next to him took a bullet in the face. Millen's kilt floated in the seawater as he strode ashore, already pumping his pipes. Lovett asked him to march up and down in full view of the Germans playing the road to the Isles as the rest of the brigade disembarked. German prisoners later told Millen they didn't fire at him because they thought he'd gone mad. With his men at last ashore, the 33-year-old Lovett, wearing a monogrammed shirt beneath his battle dress, struck out for Benneville to relieve John Howard's paratroopers, who'd taken the bridges there overnight. The 1st Special Brigade were a crack unit, trained to the nth degree by Lovett along the Sussex coast, but they were already late. Lovett, known by his men as the Mad Bastard, turned once more to Millen. Right, Piper. Start the pipes again and play until we get to Benneville. The airborne are at the bridges there, and when they hear the pipes, they'll know we're coming. Around Benneville, the men of the 6th Airborne were waiting. For many, it felt like they'd been waiting an age. I know the longest day and all that stuff, but this really was a hell of a long day. Where were the commandos? Howard's men were getting desperate, surrounded and fighting against the odds. They repelled a succession of German attacks and had one huge stroke of luck. A rare German plane appeared and dive-bombed the bridge. If the Germans couldn't recapture it, they would happily destroy it. Incredibly, the bomb landed on the bridge but bounced off and into the canal without exploding. Overnight, German snipers had crept into positions around Howard's men. The paratroopers began a deadly game of cat and mouse. They were helped by the capture of a German flak gun, which they turned on their attackers. It gave me the greatest personal delight to sit behind a captured German gun, firing German ammunition up German arseholes. I enjoyed every minute of it. As the battle raged, Howard fretted. They'd no radio, so no clue if the landings had succeeded, no clue as to when Lovett might arrive. I kept checking my watch constantly. I said to myself under my breath, Come on, lads, where are the bloody commandos? They were not far away, around half a mile, but caught in a brutal struggle for the village of Benneville itself. By the time Lovett's group fought their way through and arrived at the bridges to shake hands with Howard, Piper Millen now playing blue bonnets over the border, some of his own men had beaten him to it. Captain Alan Pyman had arrived half an hour earlier with a troop made up of Belgians, Dutch, Norwegians and Poles as well as British troops. Also in their ranks were a number of German Jewish refugees. They'd been given British names and had Church of England marked on their dog tags in case they were captured. Pyman's men attacked on towards Breville, but came up against stiff German resistance. 
Hyman himself was killed by a sniper and his men forced back. The first French soldiers, two troops of Marine commandos under Philippe Kiefer, landed on sword shortly before 8 a.m. They attacked the heavily defended resort of Rivabella. The casino had been fortified and it took repeated attacks before it was overrun. Meanwhile, at Berchtesgaden, Hitler woke late. He'd been up until 3 a.m. that night with Ava Brown and Goebbels. He was reported to have reacted joyfully on receiving first reports of the landings, believing with certainty the Allies would be thrown back into the sea. But still, he refused permission for the panzers to head for the coast. It was not until the afternoon that Hitler released them. The nearest was the 21st Panzer Division, scattered around Kahn. Its commander, Edgar Feuchtinger, was in Paris with his mistress on the night of 5th of June and didn't return to his HQ until late the next day. It meant no panzers were moved against the lightly armed 6th Airborne overnight or as dawn broke. The paratroopers were expecting an armoured attack, fearing it, but it never came. And when the Germans did at last gather a panzer force together, 104 Mark IV tanks to attack the beachhead in daylight, they were decimated by Allied air attacks. <coughs> by the time the typhoons were done, around 40 tanks had been put out of action. Sword Beach may have been taken swiftly, but what followed next was anything but. The British finished D-Day well short of their target of Khan, a failing put down as much to poor planning and forethought as to the events of the morning and early afternoon. It was an ambitious target. Perrier's Ridge was attacked, and the plan was for the tanks of the Staffordshire Yeomanry to then support three infantry battalions in pressing onto Khan. But a higher-than-expected tide led to the beach becoming cluttered, delaying the tank's departure. German artillery and minefields further hindered progress. After waiting an hour, the infantry attacked without the tanks. At the same time, the attack on the ridge foundered against a strong point codenamed Hillman. Tank support had to be diverted to help the Suffolks. Ahead, Khan was already in ruins. It was a tragic day for the ancient city. That morning, when news of the invasion broke, the Gestapo executed 87 resistance prisoners in the courtyard of the city's jail. Shortly before 2 p.m., the RAF arrived. The city was regarded as a pivotal point from which German counterattacks could be launched. As with St. Lo, radio broadcasts and leaflet drops encouraged civilians to evacuate. Few did. All the windows of our shops were blown out, and inside the house, a thick cloud of dust poured from the walls and ceilings. The raid lasted less than 20 minutes, but it was devastating. A dense cloud of smoke and dust was covering the city. Day had turned to night. Streets were so badly blocked, ambulances could not get through. Young French people dug desperately in the rubble in search of survivors. One teenage girl was pulled alive from the ruins of her home 
after a three-hour rescue operation. I was dizzy, disfigured, and stained by my cousin's blood. My head heavy, one eye completely closed, and a numb arm. Her cousin was dead. A woman took her brother's body to the mortuary. He had a number tied around his neck and was placed among the other casualties. The dead were laid out on the ground, side by side, like well-behaved children. In the south of the city, 15,000 people sought shelter in medieval tunnels. They would end up staying there for over a month. It's estimated over 800 civilians were killed in the bombing and naval bombardments on June 6th and 7th, with many thousands more wounded. As well as Saint-Lô and Caen, Falaise and Lisieux were heavily bombed. 100,000 people were left homeless across Normandy. Caen's population was reduced from 60,000 to 17,000. In London that afternoon, Winston Churchill stood up in a packed House of Commons and announced news of the invasion. So far, the commanders who are engaged report that everything is proceeding according to plan, and what a plan. Back across the Channel, British forces struggled on towards Khan. But lacking armoured support and transport, the infantry battalions were left high and dry. Some blamed the commanders on the ground, Many believed blame lay higher up the chain. Sir Miles Dempsey, commander of the British Second Army, and Montgomery, accused of not having thought through the plan once the beachhead had been taken. The 21st Panzer Division still posed the greatest threat to the beachheads. Finally, in late afternoon, they attacked, seeking to exploit the gap between British and Canadian forces. But the Staffordshire Yeomanry were waiting. Three troops of Firefly Shermans with 17-pounder guns destroyed 13 panzers within minutes. Anti-tank units did for a number more. A handful of panzers reached the coast, but soon withdrew. That evening, as Colonel von Oppeln Bronikowski, an experienced tank commander, dug in his remaining panzers, a thought struck him. He was now preparing to use them for defense, not attack. I never thought I'd see the day this would happen. I knew then that the war was finished. But the fighting on the 6th of June was still to be done. As the battle raged around the sword beachhead, more than 200 gliders made a timely arrival to reinforce 6th Airborne. Nigel Taylor, a wounded parachute major, watched them land as he sat outside the cafe at the Orne Bridge, leg freshly bandaged. George Gondry bought me a glass of champagne, which was very welcome indeed after that sort of day, I can tell you. And then just when it was getting dark, there was a tremendous flight of aircraft, British aircraft, hundreds of gliders, hundreds of the damn things. And of course, they were also dropping supplies, all this stuff coming down. And it seemed only very few minutes afterwards, there were all these chaps and jeeps towing anti-tank guns and God knows what. And at that moment, I can remember thinking to myself, we've done it. The Strongpoint Hillman, the largest and best defended of a series of inland concrete fortresses, 
was at last taken around 8pm by the Suffolks and supporting tanks. The tanks withdrew to resupply. The Suffolks dug in. Two Suffolk men discovered a cupboard of five-star brandy. They liberated it. After me and him drunk the first bottle, I said, we feel better now, don't we? And George said, yeah. Shortly after 9pm, Rommel made it back to his headquarters at Chateau La Roche-Guillon. He assembled his staff, watched by his adjutant, Helmut Lang. Lang recalled Rommel's words earlier that year. They had to throw back the Allies within the first 24 hours, or all was lost. One thing everybody knew that night was that the landings had still been a success, and nobody knew better than Field Marshal Rommel that the writing was on the wall. Along the five beachheads and further inland, the exhausted men of Eisenhower's task force dug in, sheltering in captured strongpoints, ruined Norman houses, or in foxholes scratched in the lee of the huge hedgerows dividing the countryside. As the 6th of June headed into history, a 20-year-old private from the battered US 29th Division lay down above Omaha Beach to try and catch some sleep. Robert Zaft stared into the darkness, a young man a long way from home, eyes heavy with exhaustion, but alive. I made it up the hill. I made it all the way to where the Germans had stopped us for the night. And I guess I made it up the hill of manhood. D-Day was over. 7th of June would bring more challenges for Zaft and his comrades. The battle, even to get out of Normandy, was to take 11 bloody weeks and many lives. Many targets had not been achieved. But the Allies were ashore. Rommel was right. D-Day was a success. It was the beginning of the end. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. on wars that shaped the world. Less than a week ago, in the early morning hours of August 2nd, Iraqi armed forces, without provocation or warning, invaded a peaceful Kuwait. Troops crossed the border into Kuwait, and its army of just 20,000 men was swept aside in a matter of hours by a force of tanks and infantry. When I reached the shelter, I heard the screams of the people who wanted to get out. By 10 a.m., the voice had stopped. No one was screaming. And four days ago, he promised the world he would withdraw. And twice we have seen what his promises mean. His promises mean nothing. This series featured Mike Lyons, Timothy Knudsen as General Eisenhower, Mickey V, Thomas Mitchells, Lucas Veschler, Alex Figueredo, Caroline Sampay, Alexander Pino, Mustafa Buanani, Morrison James, Kareem Cronfleet, Darcy Ferguson, 
and Alex Magliara. Wars That Shaped the World was a Goal Hanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliott. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pasta. Smokes.